you imagine the Roman soldiers on the day that Jesus was crucified saying that there's going to be a church that's going to sing about clinging to this one hanging on the cross some 2,000 years later. What an amazing reality and beautiful picture that we have the one who was crucified, crucified, but he's the living one. We need to cling to him. Amen? You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to the very back of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we continue our sermon series. This is part three uh, in a series entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Uh, We've looked at the portrait of the risen Christ in chapter one, and really our focus is going to be on what Jesus says to the seven churches in Asia Minor and to us in chapters two and three, who Jesus is on the throne in chapter four and five. So we're going to navigate through this incredible book uh, in the next several weeks. So today we are actually in chapter two, and we're going to look at this incredible church called Ephesus. A dear friend of mine, who I admire greatly, respect him a whole lot, is pastor of an incredible church, a very big church, First Presbyterian Church of Orlando, Dr. David Swanson. And I don't know if you've ever gone to First Pres's office or gone to see David Swanson, but if you do, it's kind of interesting. Uh, in the offices area there, there are portraits of all the pastors they've had. I mean, these are big portraits of all these guys that have at one time filled the pulpit that were the lead pastors of an incredible church like that. It's kind of weird to go and see a friend and there's a portrait of your buddy. It's like, wow, this is a, an amazing kind of an interesting thing about a church. And so I'm starting this morning a portrait fund for Jeff Jakes for King's Chapel. And what would it look like over the years? I mean, as we, as we grow, what will it look like years down the road? Is there ever going to be a place where there'll be portraits of our pastors? Can I just hit pause and say, I hope not, <laughs> you know, no matter what. Not anything against them, but it's kind of a little different. But if the church of Ephesus If you walked into the church of Ephesus, which by the way, at that time probably was a home church, but let's just think, if you walked in the church of Ephesus and you saw a portrait of their pastors, I'm telling you, it would be a who's who of pastorates. The apostle Paul himself was a pastor in Ephesus. He spent some time, some years in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, he would write a very important letter to the church at Ephesus called Ephesians from a jail in in Rome. Uh, to that church. And his prodigy, his his, uh, young gun, Timothy, uh, that we would have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy written by Paul, he too was a pastor in Ephesus. But also in Ephesus, they had Aquila and Priscilla, this incredible power couple that were originally from Corinth. They went there, apparently great teachers. They really passionate about the gospel. And one of the people that they were able to teach and help along was a guy named Apollos. And Apollos was one of the best orators of Christianity of the very, very early church. His portrait would be there as well. So you got Paul, you got Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, uh, you got Apollos. And then last but certainly not least, you have John. John the Apostle. John the one who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, who wrote the book of Revelation. John the one who would call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Tradition will tell us at the end of his life, John also ministered in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, if you go there, there's going to be a church with his name on it. 
It's a pretty cool historic church that you can walk through. But Ephesus had an incredible who's who of pastors. It was an incredible church with an incredible history. Now, Ephesus is different these days. It was at the time an important port city in the Roman Empire, located in Asia Minor or the modern day Turkey. As a busy port city, it was a major trade route. It had running hot and cold water in the the days of Paul uh, brought into it. I mean, it's an incredible place that you could walk around. It contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis, or to the Roman Diana was there. It's bigger than anything that was in supposedly Athens, but it was known, the city was known for its wealth, its power, its fame, its superstition, and its idolatry. Well, when Paul showed up in Ephesus, he starts preaching the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God. Do you know that? And when you hear the gospel, when people start getting their lives transformed, cities get transformed. And Ephesus started to transform in the power of the gospel. It was beautiful. And the gospel started bearing fruit, and it had such a deep impact that there was a silversmith by the name of Demetrius. And Demetrius was so ticked off because of the economic downturn to his, build, his business. He would make idols, especially for Diana. He would make all these idols and he'd sell them. He had a good business. But when people started realizing these idols are stupid, they're worthless. There's one true living God and Jesus is the way. He's the one. They stopped buying the, uh, these idols. It got so bad that this guy created a riot. There was a riot right in Ephesus because of Christianity and the impact that was happening. I have some pictures, some family pictures. I've had the privilege of being in Ephesus a few times. This is still standing, part of their library in a magnificent city uh, that you can go to. This is the very amphitheater where the riot took place. Uh, if you want, it's so cool. You go to a place like this and you open up God's word and you read Acts 19 and it took place there. It's like, wow, the Bible goes from black and white to living color. But Ephesus has something else very cool. I'm not kidding you. There's two signs in Ephesus that have that. Genuine fake watches. What does that mean? (laughs) Hey, what do you got? I got a genuine fake Rolex right here. It's a genuine fake Rolex. So you got to love it. They probably don't understand the English very much, but those, that's what you'll see in modern day Ephesus. Well, the church of Ephesus is the first of seven churches uh, that was written by John uh, in Revelation uh, about the risen lamb. And by the way, the book of Revelation, oftentimes people call it revelations, but if you look at your Bible, it's actually revelation. It's the revealing of Christ Jesus. But the book of uh, the church of Ephesus is going to be the first that Jesus is going to send this letter to. Uh, and the church of Ephesus, I mean, they were known. I mean, they were a buzz of activity. They had some great good works. They were patiently enduring hardship. They had good theology. Now, let's just hit pause here for a minute and say, okay, you got this famous church. You have these famous pastors, and they're known for good works. And not only that, they're known for for suffering, for enduring patiently uh, through some trials. And they're known for the theology. Isn't that a great church? Wouldn't you say success? You know, Scripture says they weren't healthy. How can you not be healthy if you have those things? They had a heart issue. They had a heart issue. And that really was the issue that Jesus is going to address. So there's a similar structure. We're going to spend the next several weeks looking uh, at what he specifically says to one of these seven churches 
again, in Asia Minor, probably along a postal route uh, in Turkey. But these letters all came in one whole scroll of the book of Revelation, and they were for all. They were read by every church. But they're also read by us. Here's the point. We're going to hear about an ancient church. We're going to hear some of their issues. But because this is God's holy word, these are our issues. We've got to figure out, God, what do you have for us as well? So as we break this down, what I want to do is I want to kind of look at this passage. Let's look at the greeting. How, how, what does it tell us about the greeting? Let's look at the praise. What is the praise in this? All but one church has praise. The, book, the church of Sardis, they're so bad they didn't get any praises. There's rebuke. Um, all but two churches get rebuked. Smyrna and Philadelphia. They were doing good enough. They didn't get a rebuke. There's an exhortation of what they need to do. There's a warning about coming judgment. There's a spiritual healing, hearing. Those who have ears, we'll talk about that. And then there is a blessing. So how we're going to attack this um, is we're going to look at this letter. It's only seven verses and, and Revelation 2, a beginning in verse 1. We're going to look through 1 through 7 and then we're going to attack it this way or unpack it. But hear the word of the Lord that God has given to us in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But, man, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nickelodeons, Nickelodeons, which also I hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass wither, the flowers fades, but the word of God will endure forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for your word and thanks for this letter. God, only you can come and help make sense to us what was written so long ago to the church in Ephesus. So God, would you come by the power of your spirit and would you be pleased to speak through a broken sinner like me? Would you be our teacher? Spirit, be our guide. Illuminate God's word to us. Give us ears to hear your voice. Give us minds to understand your word. Give us hearts to embrace your truth. And give us feet that walk in a manner worthy of your name. God, the things that I say that are just my opinion are wrong. May those things fall away and be forgotten quickly. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, would you use those things to make us more like your son, our Savior, Jesus? And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. All right, this format of this letter, as you see, the first thing is a greeting. It's kind of an unusual greeting. Uh, it's going to tell us who it's to, uh, who it's from, and, and what uh, um, the writer knows. So it's to. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And we talked about this last week. Uh, Each one of the churches is going to be described to the angel of the church at this location. Who is the angel? Is it literally an angel? In the book of Revelation, there are a lot of literal angels. It might be. It could be the messenger. It could be it's addressed to the pastor, to the leader of the church. Is it supposedly just to them? Well, it's probably written to them too. Some think it's really the angel is the spirit of the church. What is that That ethos, the spirit of that church? Is it addressed to that church? I don't know for sure, but here's what I know. Who's it to? The church of Ephesus, specifically, but also by God's grace to us. And who is it from? Well, it's from this triumphant lamb, Jesus. And I love what he's doing. He's going to use a description that he gave us in chapter one. Every time he writes to a church, he's going to use a description of himself that he already told us of that portrait we looked at last week. If you missed it, it's online. It's an incredible portrait of who Jesus is. And here's how he describes himself to us, to Ephesus. To him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, to holds those, those churches, uh, to holds those leaders, those angels, the one who walks among the seven lampstands. So, um, and then he says, I know, remember, lampstands were the churches. And he says this in verse two, I know, I know your works. So here, what do we have about the greeting? This is beautiful, you can't miss it. He says this, I'm in your midst. I'm walking among the lampstands, which means I'm walking among the churches. He's saying, I'm in touch I hold the seven stars. I hold the churches. I hold you in the palm of my hand. And I'm in the know. I know. I know about you. I know what you're doing. I know what you're not doing. And I love you. But I know. So we have some really good news to start with. Is that God is a God who's Emmanuel, a God with us. A God who's in our midst, who walks among us. A God who has all authority over us, who holds in his very right hand the power over us. And a God who knows. It's interesting. I know that when we often pray, we often pray to God as if we're telling him something. God, I'm here, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm on I-4 in traffic, and I'm, I'm really struggling today with, with what's happening. And it's kind of like we start our prayers oftentimes by giving him a report so we can bring him up to speed, right? So we can just make sure that God knows exactly where we are. Now, if you pray that way, if that helps you, that's great. But please know, you're not informing God anything, right? Oh, you're on I-4. Oh, man. Oh, you need help. Oh, yeah, clearly I-4 is a nightmare. I got to come on I-4. Oh, you're late to a meeting. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. Okay, I, I got to really pay attention here. But so what it's telling us in this greeting is beautiful. I know you. I'm in your midst. I hold you. You're in my hand. And I know. That's good news. If we closed right now and we're not, if we closed right now in prayer, we would have good news. God is in our midst and God holds us in his hands and he knows us and he loves us. So that is good news. Amen. Okay. So second thing we have the praise, the praise in verse two and three. And I'm telling you, the church of Ephesus had some great praise. They had some good stuff. God says, I know your good works and and then your toil. And this toil is is a very strong word in the Greek. It's almost like the toil of being beaten with a rod. I mean, I I know that that you are are standing up for Christ. I mean, you're taking some shots from a world who's making fun of you. But you're working so hard. You're toiling. It's great. great, uh, 
Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10, right after 2.8 and 9, it says, reminds us that by grace we've been saved through faith, not of works, so no one can boast. But verse 10 says, but we are in Christ Jesus, his masterpiece, his workmanship, created to do good works that Christ has prepared for us in advance. So they're doing what God has saved them to do. They're doing good works. This is good things. They're doing missions. They're a beehive of activity. I mean, the church was just active with missions and mercy and worship and teaching. And boy, do I hope King's Chapel, we too are known for our good works. That we love our neighbor as ourselves. That we are passionate about telling the good news to others. That we're passionate and we start supporting missionaries around the world. That we're passionate about mercy ministry and coming alongside those who are broken and needy. That's what the church has got to do and be about. But they were more than just good works. They also had patient endurance. They were enduring patiently and bearing up for my or Jesus' namesake and have not grown weary. This is incredible. They, they were hanging in there. And King's Chapel, we too need to be known for our patient endurance. As we stand and we proclaim the gospel, we live in a world more and more and more that's going to take shots at us. I mean, the church today is different than the church that many of us grew up in. And we got to make sure that we stand for truth. And we got to make sure that we patiently endure a world that might make fun of us for believing in our great God and his word. They had patient endurance. They also had good theology. I mean, how do you not have good theology if Paul was your pastor for a while, right? How do you not have good theology if Timothy's there and John's there? And they did have good, how did they, we know they had good theology? They guarded the gospel. And they guarded the gospel from false teachers. They tested those who said that they had a special new message. They tested those who said they had special new powers. These false apostles. And they found them out. I don't know how they did it, but they did. The Holy Spirit helped find them out. And I love it. This is so important for our church right here. They hated the false teachings of the Nicolaitans. They hated the false teachings. Now, by the way, we're not exactly sure who these people are. There's a lot of commentary about that. Is this one of the seven that was mentioned in Acts chapter 6 with that name? But here's what we know for sure. And again, they're going to come up again, and I'm going to talk more about it in a, in a couple of weeks. These are people who are attacking the church from within. These are the people that look like they're Christians. Are they Christians? They're ringing my doorbell. They're talking about the Bible. They're talking about end time. Are they Christians? I mean, these are the people that they might be on bicycles, and they might have nice ties, and they might come and be nice people. Are they Christians? And, and I, I got to tell you, the biggest threat to Christianity in the church is often from within. Think of Jesus. The hardest time he had with people were the religious people from within. So what they did is they had a false gospel. They, they, were, they were bringing in, yeah, yeah, Jesus is important, but you know what? They started bringing in some, some junk and the church was against it. But what I love is this. We got to see this church. They hated, we need to hate what God hates. They hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They didn't hate the Nicolaitans. Big difference. When someone rings my doorbell and they're telling me and my neighbor about Jesus not being a part of the Trinity and they're not telling me who Jesus really is and the nice and kind of there, I hate their teaching. And I tell them, I'm sorry. I say, you know what? I'm praying that you don't find favor because you're lying to my neighbors about my Jesus and it makes me mad. And I'm not always nice to them, and I need to be better. And I'm convicted in this, because it's easy for us to hate them instead of hate their message. They're deceived. 
And but by the grace of God, there go I. As if I'm smart enough to get the gospel. The only reason I get it is the grace of God. The only reason you get it is the grace of God because he gave us ears to hear, right? So let's be a compassionate bunch of people who are just brokenhearted of those who are deceived. But let's hate their teaching. I'm telling you, church, this is where we're going. I think for a long time we've been close to the, well, you know, well, they got, and there might be a way to, and those, they're not, well, no. When it's false, it's false. When it's true, it's true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We stand for truth. We have to always stand for truth. Hate what is evil. And in our days, it's probably maybe more of the prosperity gospel. I hope you hate it. I hope you hate someone who says this is the gospel, that if, if you give more money, you're going to get more things. That, that if you do the right things, a bigger house is all yours. I mean, the prosperity gospel is not found in the Bible. What does God say? You want to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. You, you want to come into the kingdom, it's going to be difficult. So what I love about the church of, 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 of uh, Ephesus is they had good theology. They hated the teaching of those who rang their doorbells, but they didn't hate the people. We need to do the same. With all the good stuff, with their good works, patient endurance, good theology, guess what? The church, of uh, uh, they weren't healthy. Of Ephesus wasn't healthy because they had a heart issue. So hear the rebuke in verse 4. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you have at first. Now, what does that mean? It's not crystal clear. Maybe some of you, it's like, that's really clear. Whose love are they abandoning? Well, first and foremost, they must have abandoned God's love, the love of God. But they also must have abandoned the love of neighbor. I mean, maybe they were so suspicious. I mean, maybe they were so arrogant in their theology. Maybe they got just kind of big for their britches. But this is a serious rebuke. You've lost your love. You've lost your first love. My brothers and sisters, God is love. 1 John 4.8. And love, I'm going to give you three things. Love needs to be our motivation. Let me say it again. Love needs to be your motivation. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this. May the love of Christ compel you. If you are serving Jesus out of duty, if you're serving him because you have to, may the love of Christ compel you. May you just be blown away that there's a God who is and a God who loves you and a God who's forgiven you. And may you get up and want to serve him. Why? Because he loves you and you love him. And God, watch, watch this. This is amazing. God cares as much about your motivation for doing things as what you do. And you're going to say, that can't be right, Jeff. But I'm going to tell you, it is true. God cares about your motivation as much as your actions. How could that be true? Think of the Pharisees. They tithed, they prayed, they did all these things, but their hearts were far from him. And he says, listen, you're like, a, like snakes, a brood of vipers. You, you know, you worship me with your stuff, but your heart's far away. You should continue to do those things, but give me your heart. So love should be our motivation. Love should be our priority. When Jesus was asked a trick question by our religious leaders, what's the greatest commandment? And how, how did he respond? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second was like that, to love your neighbors as yourself. And here's an amazing thing he says. He says, I'm going to take all, the, the, all of the Bible, the, the law and the prophets, they all hinge together on love. You know, I know what the Bible's all about. Love God with everything you got. You know what the Bible's all about? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you think we need a savior? How often have you loved God with everything you've had? And how often have you loved your neighbor really as yourself? 
And let me just tell you, this pastor hasn't done it yet. And I love him. I'm striving to love my neighbor. But that's what needs to be our priority. Love. Church, not just good theology. Love. Good theology with love. Because why? Paul tells us, without love we're nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I've gained nothing. The King's Chapel be known as a place that's passionately in love with the God who is and loves our neighbor. And then there's an exhortation. It's just a beautiful exhortation that really is like, this is how we should live our lives. Remember. The first thing is remember. Remember where you have fallen. Remember the gospel. Every day of your life, you and I should wake up and we should remember that we need a Savior. Remember what he has done for us. Remember how far away by nature we are from God's grace. Remember what Christ has done for us. And as we remember, we repent. One of the greatest blessings of a Christian's life is repentance. It's not something you're to do once to embrace Christ. It's a muscle, a spiritual muscle we should exercise all the time. We should be living our lives, living, breathing, repenting. Not for salvation, because our union with Christ once and for all is secure, but for our communion with Christ, to make sure that the pipeline is clean. Are you exercising the muscle of repentance? And maybe you say, Jeff, do I have a lot to repent of? Well, let me ask you this. If the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself, is there not enough reason right there to repent? Because how often do we fail that? So we remember, we repent, then we resume. What we do is important. Do the works you did at first. Resume. Walk in Christ. And what a beautiful exhortation. May that, may the Holy Spirit just absolutely just burn that into our souls. How do we live? We remember, we repent, we resume. All right, the warning. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Churches are going to come and go. What will be the history of King's Chapel? Will we be here in 50 years? Will we be here in 100 years? We still could be around. Now here's the reality. They can come and go, but the church, those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, his people will, are going to remain with him forever. The bride of Christ will endure, that universal church. This church, I sure hope it does. But what will be our legacy? What are we building? What are we praying for? Oh God, may you for absolute generations to come find faithfulness. May there be baptisms and conversions and great things here. Because why? If the church isn't preaching the gospel, he's going to remove it. And we've seen it. What's happening in our society? What's happening with the denominations? There's been a loss. A loss of love. And then in every one of the letters, there's going to be this. I don't know how to describe this. This is the weirdest one. The spiritual hearing. But in every one, this is said specifically. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love the picture of the Trinity here. It's Jesus who's teaching, but now he wants to say, hear what the Spirit is also telling you. Um, but he who has an ear to hear, he's addressing the churches. Now you have this individual exhortation for each one of us to hear. Who has an ear to hear? Well, the only people who have an ear to hear the gospel and hear what 
the Spirit is saying are those who God's grace gives them the ear to hear. It's called effectual calling. The gospel goes out from somebody great like Billy Graham. And some come and some don't. And what's the distinction? It's God's grace. Because God gives us the ability to hear. Jesus himself would use those words, the you who has an ear to hear. If you know and love the gospel, thank your God, it's by his grace. All by his grace. And only God's people, only his elect, are going to hear the good news and respond. And lastly, the blessing. To those who conquer, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <laughs> this story is amazing. It's so beautiful. Genesis is a revelation. It starts in Genesis and the loss of life and being banished from the tree of life. And it's found at the end of the book in Revelation, all because of the work of Christ. It's beautiful. But who are the ones who conquer? Are you a conqueror? Am I a conqueror? Only in Christ. Christ is the conqueror. And be, if you are in Christ, you and I one day will eat in paradise from the tree of life. I don't know what it's going to taste like. I don't even know what it's going to look like. I don't know. But I know that in Christ, the conqueror, I'll have access. I'm not sure if King's Chapel will ever have an office. <laughs> I'm not sure if King's Chapel will ever have a building that has portraits of the senior pastors over the years. But the only portrait that ever matters in King's Chapel and in Christ's church is the portrait of Jesus. The portrait of Jesus and who he is and what he has done and the life that reigns in us because of him. May we be a church that is known for the way we love, for the way we love our Savior, for the way we love our triune God, for the way we love one another, all the while doing good works, all the while enduring patiently suffering, all the while having good theology. But we're nothing without love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this little letter. Holy Spirit, thanks for the what you have spoken to our hearts. God, may we as King's Chapel, as small as we are, as a little mustard seed, may we be known for the way we love you and the way we love one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand?